0: my point is to state the importance of promoting a truly diverse system um, multipolarity that's the only way that we're going to be able to get ourselves out of this um, incessant need to engage or intervene
1: in foreign conflicts that we actually created I'm very pacifistic in general <laughs> and so I would rather I would rather just... Um, Again, hope for the best, uh, prepare for the worst. I do agree with the diversifying uh, the world and not just viewing it from, as a black and white from different prisms of um, paradigm uh, views or um, again, inevitability versus eternity. At the
2: global level, power is being shifted now. You have um, Russia, China, possibly India, that if you put all of them together in Pakistan, you're talking about at least 40% of the the world's population. That is a huge number. And so it poses a threat to the rest of the West.
3: Welcome to Thinking Through with LJ. We are going straight to discuss the world diversity and we want to understand whether we dive into the political and economic systems as such or uh, we omit the economic there and we replace with military. The way we will go in our debate is to understand how the global powers engage one another and how the sovereignty of each particular country is undermined because of the conflicts or relations between the global powers, and um, of course, we do have one current example of, of many, the Ukraine, that it's caught in between uh, a space of um, world powers, and, and, and the question there is how much of sovereignty it holds to decide what it wants to its own country, whether, whether to um, align into a particular group or not. And uh, I think we can I can ask um, Liz to start us off into that, and then uh, Anastasia will will jump in because she has um, a story to tell, and and Morris is the one who uh, makes the connection of these stories to the context of Africa. Is uh, okay, sure. Um, so it's
0: nice to meet you, Morris. I hope to uh, to, to get a little introduction. Uh, from you about know, who you are and where, where, you, uh, where you're focusing on what you're focusing on. Um, but if I can deduce from what you said Leo, um, I, I want to answer the question of, um, of whether the conflict in Ukraine um, is spurred from oops, from uh, political or economic or military interests and, and, and the legacy of these problems or uh, issues. So, um, I, I do see this conflict as stemming from um, initially, I, I see the Russia's willingness to engage in military conflict with a, um, an increasingly close ally of NATO and basically the West, um, but primarily of the United States by way of NATO. Um, as initially incentivized, at least, by its historical economic isolation from the West. So if we're going to see this um, from the perspective of economics, then I would say yes, this has to do with uh, that. And I, I just want to um, bring a t- or draw attention to a, a quick post that Ian Bremer, who's the president of Eurasia Group, Um, wrote yesterday, and I just want to state an excerpt from the the little uh, blurb he wrote. Once the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended, Central and Eastern European states that were previously in the Warsaw Pact were welcomed with open arms into the West, with most eventually joining the European Union and NATO. Integration with the global economy allowed these countries to transition to democratic Market economies and achieve high levels of economic development within a single operation. Just look at Poland, which went from communist wasteland to growth miracle in less than 30 years. Meanwhile, NATO membership freed these countries from the instability and insecurity they had historically faced. What did Russia get? Shock therapy, privatization, a little bit of economic aid, but not nearly enough and most of it stolen by the new oligarch privatization had created. There was no Marshall Plan for the reconstruction of Russia. There was no real Western effort to integrate Russia into the U.S.-led global order, even though Russia's first post-war president, Boris Yeltsin, was eager to draw closer to the West. This was very apparent um, after the Soviet Union fell, and this was one of the reasons why The three leaders uh, met in the forest to disband the Soviet Union because they thought we are so isolated and so economically devastated because of their um, participation or their engagement in the in the world, in World War II, that we cannot survive as nations um, without participation in the Western with the West. In the Western clan, or the, the without the West support, and when they told uh, the United States about this, it was welcome. They we we congratulated them for transitioning from the Soviet Union to um, the post-Soviet space, which was understood as either you know two poles, communist or democratic states. But I, I think Ian Bremer nails it on the. Uh, right, 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 uh, very clearly. That was the, that is the crux of the, the resentment um, on the part of the former Soviet bloc, which is led by Russia. So that that is the economic piece. Um, right now, post post-Soviet, let's take the Cold War era, which I believe never actually ended, the conflict, was mobilized by a new global order which was uh, led by the united states and that is the global order of militarization of uh the world the conflict since the soviet union disbanded was military militarization of states to protect the united states hegemonic position in the global order and Russia saw that, saw that their isolation was no longer a problem um, or what, their isolation was no longer due to being a communist state. And they understood that now that the Soviet Union is gone or disbanded, the problem never really was about what type of market economy was, uh, they, would, they were supporting. It was the fact that they did not want to be a client of the United States, meaning militarily uh, they wanted to be able to establish their presence globally uh, uh, as a self-determined power. Um, they didn't want to be dependent on the West for military security. And that's what the, the Cold War uh, ended up becoming, a race for nuclear uh, power and I, I want to just stop uh, with uh, by stating that, like my my agenda here and in in general studying this issue, is not to aimlessly badger the United States um, for its history of diplomatic failures or like failed foreign policy. It's to highlight the importance of accounting for previous errors and their impact, their current impact. On global relations. And we can we will not, we will not get anywhere as a nation or as a as a power um, with regard to resolving international conflicts unless we hold our we, we hold ourselves accountable for past actions. Think Germany. You know, we required Germany to recognize its failure as a global power um, for its its Nazi history. And that enabled it to move on from that horrible, horrible scar, which it actually still bears. Um, and and it's still it, it it is part of like public policy to constantly remind its citizens of this past failure um, and 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 egregious action. Where I'm going to stop is basically economy no longer has anything to do with the war. It has to do with whether or not the United States, uh, sorry, Russia, Russia. Uh, and the United States can be separate but equal global military powers. This is not okay with the United States, especially as a hegemony. Um, and I think this is why North Korea insists that it's not going to um, stop its um, its nuclear weapon uh, experimentation because it sees it's not going to be a client state either of the United States in terms of military power or China. Or Russia, it wants to be its own state, and this has to do with self-determination. I think the United States does not need other countries to be uh, to to ensure free market in order to to ensure democracy. I think they have shown the United States has shown itself to be one that needs other states to be free market economy in order to exploit their resources. And Russia doesn't want part of that, so. I think what we can deduce from the Cold War is that the United States, by way of its citizen population, its civilian population, sorry, uh, realized that it had kind of grown into a monster uh, starting with, you know, the Gulf War and Vietnam. And then it also like drove or promoted or encouraged other states, primarily Russia, to mirror this competition. So what's the point of having stockpiles of nuclear weapons that can annihilate, in, you know, all living, all life on, on the planet with just two, wep- two, two uh, missiles? When you have thousands, what's what is the point? And I think that the energy just to be amicable with competing powers has dissolved um, because we realize we have promoted this deleterious culture to, to promote um, violent competition. So that's, I think this is very much about military, um, this is very much a military power conflict. And, and, and NATO, the fact that Putin said, you cannot have Ukraine join NATO is, is a, a, a strong um, um, evidence of that.
3: Thank you, Liz, um, and, and I see Anastasia there. Please jump in. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make the comments accordingly.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, to kind of echo Liz, I so it sounded like um, Liz took the approach of well, if the United States has been doing the damage and uh, promoting um, colonizing and, and and you know uh, weaponization, so why why shouldn't Russia do that? And I'm going to bash Russia actually. I'm going to be I'm going to bring some cultural background towards the conflict and as well as historical facts. Um, but to echo Liz basically you know the the two powers that are currently bashing heads um and with, with the crux being Ukraine in Ukraine within Ukraine um they are basically a carriers of the two historic Historical models that my favorite Timothy Snyder coined, and I'm going to bring his book again, The Road to Unfreedom, Uh, History of Inevitability versus History of Eternity. Inevitability model is the Western model. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, the, the West, the United States, Western Europe, mistakenly thought that, okay, once the communism falls, this is our way of life is what it should be for all, everybody, meaning democracy and also laissez-faire capitalism. That was actually more, econ- economically it was more important than democracy if you think about that. Um, while Russia sort of, even though in the 90s and early aughts, it attempted to kind of look westward and it was actually rapidly economically developing at that time, albeit just for the for the, the fact that it was mostly oil and gas dependent, right? They saw that going forward is not beneficial to them culturally, not economically per se, but culturally of looking back and thinking, oh, remember those good old days when we were feared, when we were respected, when our country was so united, when our pensions were paid, when everyone had a job, when I'm just basically quoting, you know, those... Quote unquote statistic from the Soviet system it was like everyone was taken care of. Look and look at our culture. And 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 again, culturally, you know, Putin is claiming that the world is canceling Russia, has been canceling it, but we're basically canceling it because of the heinous acts that, that he, he and his army is doing right now to Ukrainians. So overall, it's just this nostalgic, almost like going back into the cocoon of old memories without actually thinking of the future and developing uh, or catching up, so quote unquote, with the rest of the world. I think a lot of dictatorships tend to think that way uh, throughout the history. Another point I would like to uh, discuss is Russia, because of this, this, counterweighting views russia always views itself as a liberator not a liberator sorry never attacking anybody it's it's usually you know we are all we 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 fight with those who attack us like nazi germany you know invading soviet union or um that was the biggest example basically but they do not acknowledge the fact that they went into Afghanistan, they went into Syria, they went to Czechoslovakia and Hungary in the 50s and 60s to try to squash the dissent and any sort of a democratic sort of uh, beginnings in those uh, also communistic countries, part of the Soviet bloc. They never mentioned that. They, they either pretend it never happened or they, they they dismissed like, Well, you know, we needed to protect our, you know, Soviet common space. And now they're doing the same thing in Ukraine. They said we're, we're not doing anything. Uh, they they've been saying that when um, they entered Crimea, they entered uh, Luhansk and Donetsk regions. So like, we're not doing anything. It's it's the separatists. I mean, they they want to fight for their freedom. Yeah, or Crimea wants to be part of Russia. Great. Um, they had you know installed the the army you know uniformed men, fatigues, army fatigues, but without any insignia. Um, basically, sponsoring. Those separatist uh, attacks, uh, but without officially claiming that okay, we're we're actually supporting them. So culturally, Soviet Union Russia has been uh, sort of an aggressor in its own. And um, because I grew up in the Soviet Union, even being on its last legs, I still remember how there was this model or this stereotype of Soviet Union uniting um, all the repressed countries like African nations, southeast uh, A- Asian nations against the capitalistic Western hegemony where we're all friends and brothers you know internationals standards um and also from even even going back to the Imperial Russia uh, basically saying that oh yeah we went east to Siberia to trade with furs and um you know, diamonds and such uh logging as well um and we didn't you know we're not colonizers the west is a colonizer they went to america they went they they were the conquistadors they uh annihilated the entire native american population we didn't do anything like that even though culturally they repressed those native peoples they made them learn russian they did sort of take all the resources there for, you know, the Soviet bloc for for the for the usage of the that, you know, the entire uh, Soviet Union and Ukraine was part of that. So Ukraine was very important in the four formations of the Soviet Union, uh, Lenin um, in 1920 when. They were about to kind of formulate the what was then modern Soviet uh, Union was like. We need Ukraine, and Ukraine was already an independent republic. albeit you know, Putin's claiming that Ukraine was never a real country. So yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm just gonna bash Russia on that too. Uh, every time the West is doing something that Russia is also doing, they always blame the West, <laughs> and they never acknowledge that they're doing the same thing. They they say. United States invaded Iraq or Afghanistan, but they never say that, oh, yeah, and by the way, we carpet-bombed Syria, like, because we could, Um, and because of the fact that United States forces actually exited uh, Syria. Uh, Another cultural sort of trait of the Russian psyche almost uh, which politi- politicians use a lot including putin right now is um the victimhood the the state of of, of constant victim uh, false victimization where they always blame the west for being uh, doing something against them you know they and they never take responsibility for their own actions or for whatever um they've been doing that was wrong um another example that comes to mind uh, in this case is in this again soviet times um of course there was obviously this informational vacuum we only heard the bad news from the west of the the hunger the uh, strikes the uh repression of human rights in the west and central south america the, uh, all the uh, catastrophes like in the west uh plane crashes, you know, train crashes, terror attacks, right? And yet, every time something like that happened within the Soviet space, there was never news about this. People sometimes would go for days without knowing that their relatives actually perished in train and plane crashes. Uh, And yet, people sort of had this, uh, almost like developed this sixth sense of... Every time they would see in the news that there was a plane crash out west, they were like, hmm, something happened here. Uh, so almost the same is happening right now in modern uh, Russian media, where they every time they say that something happens in Ukraine now, that whether it's a Bucha massacre or a recent attack on the train station, they say... They always write the articles like Ukrainians are being lied to 24-7. Well, what does that mean? That means the Russians being lied to 24-7 about that. They always say, oh, those corpses, the piles of corpses and those and those explosions, they're staged, again, by NATO, by the Nazis. They never acknowledge the truth. And and, and it's part of that psyche now. And there is no way to go back in a way. And, and, of course, in people's minds, it's it's more comfortable to kind of get get lulled by, by whatever's said on TV. I'm not saying that all Russians are like that, but, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot still watch TV and believe it, yeah. which was exactly what, ha- what was happening in the Soviet times. And I can, you know, again, relate to that. So I'm going to kind of set bashing of the West and our colon- <laughs> hegemony aside and say Russia's, Putin's Russia is a, is a monstrous being on its own. And uh, we did create the monster, we did. Uh, but this um, history of eternity is going uh, like yeah. so yeah. backwards in, in 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 people's minds that it's almost kind of like becoming this medieval way of, of thinking. And it's just horrible and I'm totally against that. But I'm that I wanna,
0: <laughs> I wanna, I really appreciate your perspective, uh, Anastasia. I wanna um, give a resource Or provide you a resource um, for on-the-ground reporting. And his name is Emil Gessen. He did a documentary on the, I think it was 45 days in Armenia, about the recent um, Nagorno-Karabakh region, the Artsakh. He he tries to be as objective as he can about reporting, even when, like, say, Ukraine um, confirms uh, Russian... Casualties, for example, he says, like, take this with a grain of salt, because uh, the fact that Ukraine is not posting its losses suggests that there might be some bias to, uh, you know, to 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 help Ukrainians see that the losses are greater on the Russian side, whereas it may not be the case. I want to I want to add to what um, Anastasia said that, you know, about Russia, you know, I, I appreciate the bashing. I think it's important for us to be equally, you know, holding each, each, each of the actors accountable. Um, I want to make a distinction between physical aggression and passive aggression um, or overt and covert aggression. Um, I think that in the case of Ukraine, as well as Afghanistan, the response of the Soviet Union and, and now Russia was the passive or covert aggression on the part of the West. It was a reaction to the covert, um, aggression. Just think if you are dealing with two people and one person says like this other person is abusing me and the judge, <laughs> you know, is trying to evaluate the the, 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 truth of the accusation. They say, show me the evidence. There's no recording. There's no physical bruising. Uh, there's no, and, and the, the, um, antagonist is just saying, you know, I didn't do anything, but behind closed doors or when no one else is around to witness, they are emotionally abusive or verbally abusive. That is still aggression and that is still violence and that is still going to cause uh, a violent reaction in defense. So I I feel like I read uh, Ghost Wars by Steve Cole, amazing book, amazing uh, story, about um, 1979 through 2001, uh, American interaction with uh, in Afghanistan, with Russia and and uh, India and Pakistan. It's an incredible book. What I understood from this book was that where we claim um, neut- neutrality in our global um, involvement or engagement is often actually passive aggression, um, what that, that we, you know, observers cannot measure easily until you go below the surface and say, okay, what were we doing? Given the context of the issue uh, of, the, of the geopolitical space, what drove the violent reaction? What catalyzed the outcome? And I would argue that that is why Russia actually invaded uh, Afghanistan. At that time, we were passively, aggressively, neutrally uh, promoting democracy at the border of of Russia at the moment, or 30 years during which, Russia wanted the United States to facilitate its own economic development. So that's the one thing I wanna just argue for. And then the other thing is sadly, Russia admires the West, secretly admires, doesn't wanna admit it, it has a big ego, and so it emulates Western foreign policy, whether it's co- colonizing um, indigenous populations by, you know, or, or displacing, uh, strategically displacing indigenous populations like the Crimean Tartars, um, the Siberian indigenous peoples, you know, obliterating their culture or, you know, just making diplomatic blunders around the world. And that is, a, that is a problem. That is a sad and unfortunate truth. And I think they could, they could, they, they emulate in order to show that they're just as good as, as the West, as the Western powers, instead of being the West's best version by learning from the West's mistakes. So I think this is the sad truth of, 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 of Russia as a whole, even during its imperial time, um, because the West has always been saying, you know, even even the first time that the the French sent their royalty to, you know, to Saint Petersburg to evaluate how good Russia was, imperial Russia was. They said, "Oh, he could be so much more refined." And it would only take a couple uh, invitations to to um, to the West, to to France and Britain, to teach them nobility, like to teach them the ways of nobility and the ways of nobility in one respect was deteriorating or denigrating the indigenous populations and culture. And so the you know Russia says, okay, I guess this is what we need to do. Instead of saying, no, that's kind of backward, you know? So I, I, I just want to comment that.
3: That's great. Morris. Uh, Maurice, let's let's have your word on it. Then we, we, we want to um, build our soup of knowledge into this because yeah we're waiting for you. Go ahead.
2: Um I mean, I just want to say thank you to Liz and Anastasia. You guys uh, made some very strong points. And even though it's in, you know, the United States versus Russia, but I want to come from the perspective of the context of the conflict in the broader prism of developing countries. I think, you know, the Western powers, they're fighting among themselves but the domino effect is greater on developing countries, right? So um, historically, Africa, uh, before the, the, the West introduced through the World Bank and IMF, this, they imposed some sort of economic governance system that control how um, public money is spent in most of Sub-Saharan Africa. That has, you know, there's a very interesting book by Dambisa Moyo called Dead Aid, where she talks about um, most of Africa now becoming poorer as a result of some of the, the Western interventions. And that is a problem in itself. So, you know, the Ukraine-Russia crisis, most of sub-Saharan Africa now, they are full, full in- insecurity. There is major Food insecurity in sub-Saharan Africa. Most of sub-Saharan Africa depend on the West for full imports. So Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, at least 80% of their full import come out of Russia and Ukraine. So with this conflict, an imposition of sanction on Russia is indirectly an imposition of sanction on those countries because their full import is directly linked to, to Russia. You see what I'm saying? So I honestly believe that there is economic factors in the conflict. I believe there is political factor in the country in the conflict, and there is also military um, factors to be considered. There is issue of colonialism that is there because right now the West is saying to smaller countries, you have to be with us. This conflict is a moral conflict. You have to join us and let's fight Russia. If you don't join us, there are repercussions. So the idea of sovereignty it's not defined by those smaller countries and um, developing countries. It's defined by the standard of of Western powers, right? So you have you know some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa that are in support of of Russia and saying, and there are some countries who say we're going to abstain from this process because it's not our war. We're going to stay away from it. But there are countries who are forced, you know, to join you know the United States and and its allies to to fight Russia just because. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have they don't have um, any sort of sovereign authority over how their perception is as far as the conflict so' there is, it's a mixture of different things. Um, food import in Africa is around four hundred billion dollars, believe it or not you know four hundred billion dollars is a lot of money um, but the entire continent is dependent on on these on these um Asian and, and western countries to to feed themselves. So, you know conflict like this do have ripple effect on on those countries so I just wanted to you know put that perspective in there and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the demilitarization of re- Ukraine in the first place you know how did that you know kind of influence was that a western strategy to kind of influence Ukraine to to join it um you know did Putin see that as a threat to um to sort of engage Ukraine the way he's engaging Ukraine. So, I mean, there are different factors that we need to just flesh out and and talk about, but yeah, I just want to point point out the the effect of the conflict on on smaller and developing countries, especially um, Sub-Saharan Africa.
3: That's great.
2: Of course,
0: I appreciate that. Can I I ask eventually, maybe later, uh, if you can comment on the BRIC? And South Africa's uh, joining of the BRIC, as in, you know, from, from the perspective of the economic incentives, um, because of the global South's uh, kind of inability to catch up, you know, with the industrial
1: North. Can I just add that, again, culturally, um, historically as well, certain nations, it looks like certain nations have been prone to over militarization based on whatever phantom or real threats that they've been having uh, versus other countries successfully would um, remain neutral, fairly peaceful, I I, I would hope. I mean, Switzerland comes to mind. Um, I just would like to comment on the fact that it's like to kind of go back to Liz's metaphor of, of <laughs> a victim being uh, verbally abused and judge not seeing the the you know the impact or the the evidence. Well, and so what would the judge to do? Uh, kill the abuser? So this is this is sort of kind of what Russia has been doing. Like, okay, well we feel threatened. Uh, no one sees that the the signs of the abuse, uh, but we we feel it in terms of like the the, again pride parade is coming our way and our our children are forced to use pronouns you know again evil west is as upon us the cultural values that we do not accept and so uh we see ukraine is uh, leaning towards west uh we're just gonna bomb everything out, out there like demilitarize the ukraine like that's that's just I don't know. I'm I'm too. Maybe I'm like this is a very emotional topic. But I I just don't see the rhyme or reason in in that like uh, justification of, of of this violence. I I would like to add that yes, you um, the soft power that superpowers use a lot, like Department of State uh, sponsoring various exchange and economic programs. Of course, Peace Corps. I was in Peace Corps. That's soft power too. Uh, However, I would rather use soft power than the freaking, you know, that, you know, powerful power in making my point across. You know what I mean? You know what I'm trying to say? I know it's like. Kind of easy to get caught up. Well, you know, with anti-violence and stuff. And I get that uh, every more or less hegemonic power uses different types of influences. Um, French Empire used that, you know. A British Empire used that in also more awful sense than you know in current times. Um, But I I would still, I would rather be sort of influenced by the soft power uh, of cultural exchange and and and. you know discussion and and economic um as well as healthcare concessions versus being brutally pounded by mortar fire and just like well you know we feel threatened by you
2: so you know i just wanted to to speak to what anastasia just just raised i, I mean I, you don't think there is conflict with culture with the west um trying to introduce some of its values in in other regions of the world you don't you don't see that as, as a conflict as a means of you know starting a conflict in Africa yeah because in Africa there are countries that are for example the west has um, tied some of the aid and contribution to African countries to sort of like um gay rights and you know pronouns and identification. And some of those countries have resisted and said, no, 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 this is not our culture. So does that mean that if they had the same military strength as Russia, would they engage in some sort of, you know, violence to prevent, you know, such an imposition of culture on them? I mean, just, you know, to think about. I think something. So. You have to think
0: I think so. Because you can say, you can even see the the toilet issue. The, <laughs> it's like a running joke in a political Science the the example of the toilet uh, um, disposing of Western toilets in in countries that actually have very poor sewage systems they rather have the poor sewage system than have it the have the American standard toilet um, the American standard and it's kind of like a, a a pun you know we don't want American standards in Egypt we don't want American standards in Afghanistan we want Afghan standards we want Egyptian standards. Away with your toilet, which we actually need because we have dirty water that we drink. It's like the problem is we we use soft power. Let's say through the Peace Corps, I was an English teacher in the Peace Corps in Armenia. We use soft power to manipulate, and and when you have a conflict, uh, when a country that has been colonized, whether by the United States or any any country, when it, when a country has experienced colonization of any kind, uh, cultural uh, genocide, whatever, any kind of abuse by uh, an outside power, when that tension is rekindled, the outside the values, whether they're good or bad, are taken at full uh, value. So any representation of the of the opponent is thrown out. It can be uh, environmental scientific developments. It can be things that are actually beneficial to the to the to the co- the, the country's own uh, existence, um, including military alliances. That is thrown out because they see that as you know I forgot what the, what the phrase is, but like something it's taken as a whole. So any part of it, they want no part of it. So. Yes, I I feel like, in a way, this is sort of justified aggression against any type of representation of of the West because of its legacy, especially in Africa, of not only colonizing, but really not even caring to promote any kind of self-determination of these states. After withdrawing from them and, and, and Britain's legacy, the United Kingdom's legacy there as well, um, just take the most recent trip by the, the royalty. As soon as they left, the, oh, no. the country declared they really wanted nothing to do with it because it's time that they just get rid of the legacies and eventually the, 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 the ties. Really, whether or not it will improve the quality of the state in the short or long term just because they want nothing to do with
1: the, with that country's legacy.
3: We are, can, I has,
1: use one, can I use one more example really quick from the Cold War? Of course, go ahead. Okay. It, it, it's related to African nations and, and uh, overall, uh, again, Cold War, push-pull, um, who is the, you know, the baddest and the biggest, um, Soviet Union and, and uh, Western world fought for Africa uh, for African attention. Uh, hence the Peace Corps, and hence uh, all the aid that the Soviet Union poured into various constructions projects, and invited uh, Africans to study in uh, universities in uh, Russia and Ukraine, etc. With uh, with those uh, sort of um, not demands, but like conditions, right? Like, okay, we're going to help you out, but you guys should kind of declare, okay, communism is the way to go. And I would say, I think I, I talked to lots of Ghanaians when I lived in Ghana who did live throughout those um, kind of push pull um, policies. They 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 would be like they they would be the ones yeah sure we'll take it but we'll, they, they would take it with a grain of salt they will be like yes please send us aid and then uh, sure we'll declare whatever you'd like us to do but deep inside they'll still re- retain their culture so on the surface it would it would look and sound like sure you know P- U uh, S America and that's what Kwame Nkrumah did in Ghana he actually worked with both. Uh, both camps, actually, and and then the United States came and you know, kind of asked him because because they found out that he was working for both camps. <laughs> like he he would he would he was taking aid from both both sides. Um, so uh, uh, I would say By the like, way there, there,
2: of- there, but there are several examples of coming Krumah's story. in africa a lot of that where they got <laughs> killed because you know they're trying to find a mutual way to deal with those two you know power yeah. people and exactly. they got killed. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
1: which is uh, i i would say is like wh- like why the heck not <laughs> you know um i'm also i'm also from a developing country like i, I was part, again part of the soviet union and in order to get concessions from moscow you kind of had to be like sure we'll be pioneers sure we'll do this sure we'll march and then that but that would be like again very sort of sort of superficial like correct me if i'm wrong but um the, the, again pushing western values through the grants or aid work like as now almost sounds like what it used to be back in soviet uh, you know uh, cold war times where nations would take this aid and yes they would say i mean we'll we'll do whatever you say but they would still retain their own identity am i wrong or no well
2: i mean i got a question can i jump no. in Leo? Oh, go
3: ahead go, ahead, Leo. No, go no. ahead no i was saying it's it's not really a question of Right or wrong, because that's a very elaborate um, opinion of your own, which we have to learn from. And I, I, I want to add, while Morris, you catch up. We, we are discussing the world, the diversity of the world, and that sentence, it's on itself suggests multiple systems, multiple economies, multi- but there is one item that is at risk in every this encounter is the coexistence, Uh, and of course, we we keep discussing uh, the West um, and and Russia, but the coexistence in all the other countries is compromised somehow. And if you look at the example of Ukraine, that is the the hardcore uh, issue of how uh, this diversity should be taken to align with the coexistence perspective. You, you asked earlier about the, the BRICS experience. That was one alternative to seek an entry point to a coexistence in an environment where uh, the worst is dominant. And then these five, um, fast growing economies decided to, well, let's, let's unite and provide an alternative to that coexistence, like Brazil, yep. India, Brazil, India, Russia, China, and, and South Africa. Uh, so it's, I, I think there is an entry point to discuss coexistence even if we want to bring it to the today's uh, results of the ongoing negotiations
2: so um leo thank you for for raising that part because i was going to come back to it because i think Liz um struck a very um good point when she was talking about you know south africa and the brics but 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 think about this south africa is is competing with Nigeria as the two largest economies in Africa. You don't have a lot of countries in Africa that has sort of the economic independence of those two countries. Um, and so most of the other sub saharan African countries are, are dependent, they are aid-dependent. They depend on the West for, you know, supporting the budget, you know, for keeping some sort of peace in a country just because of some of the aid that they get. So they are constrained to either, you you know, conform to what the Western standard is. Um, and I always made this argument that, you know, Africa needs to start to think about its own form of democracy. So it can shift. So with done this,
0: though, with developing the African Union? Don't, do not you think that that's a suggestion has started to do that?
2: Liz, believe it or not, the African Union is supported by the European Union. The African Union is not independent of itself. Most of its support comes from the, the African Union, uh, the European Union. So that in itself is still some form of, you know, colonialism, right? Because, you know, they detect detect how, you know, that formation should happen. So, but when you have somebody like, you know, Paul in Rwanda, that the West consider him as a detector, but this man has developed an economic system for his country to thrive. There is employment opportunity, There are infrastructure. But, you know, the West see him as, as, as a detector. What does that mean for Let's the hope ordinary? We don't
0: repeat the the issue, you know <laughs> what we did to the Central American region. I am really afraid, and I really hope that we do not commit the same blunder with the developing country with with this particular part of
2: Africa. It, it's is is very important because Libya used to be so envious in the, in the African region, right? Libya, Gaddafi was this strong mobilizer of, you know, development support in countries silently in, you know, a lot of African countries. Now, you know, Gaddafi got killed. The country is, you know, poorer than it was before Gaddafi. So we need to think about ways for Africa to think about its own democracy in a way that it's it's firm. I'm not saying don't collaborate with the West or, you know, Asia. I'm not saying that, but there has to be some sort of unique way of governing in and, and it speaks to this coexisting thing. So maybe the African Union needs to say to the West, you know what, just hold on for one minute, give us 10 years to figure out how we want to do this thing. And then maybe after 10 years we'll figure out how we want to build our relationship with you. Yeah. Just you know,
0: just is the United point States out. or the West going to wait that long? Because they don't have a long term trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Their trajectory is very short term. Even right culturally now. it's been proven that yeah. Western nations culturally have a very short term trajectory, and that has actually impeded its capacity uh, internationally in political or uh, foreign affairs to establish um, long term, um, not long term, but sustainable relationships.
2: And China is, is is the one now that is creating a buffer between the West and Africa. So when the West go into, a, into an African country and say, well, we'll give you two billion dollars, but you need to you know, to be a democratic country. You need to encourage, you know, um, homosexuality, for example. And the country said, no, you know, this is not our culture. We don't want to be with it. China steps into that shoe and say, forget all this good governance thing and all this thing. Whatever infrastructure you want, we'll build it. We can build the roads. We can build the railway. We can build the factories for you. Just tell us. You know, what we're getting out of it, and we'll do the construction. East Africa is a good example. There is a railway now running from Tanzania all the way going to South Africa. It's, it's a huge economic corridor that is created right there. You know, um, and I think the West is competing now. They want to be able to be part of that process, but, you know, they're still trying to figure out how to wrap it, the head around good governance versus, you know, doing the right thing for people to get out of poverty. We
1: are that. You oh, yeah <laughs> Maybe, oh, okay I, you. I I just appreciate that we finally it came to the terms of of multi-facetism of the world overall instead of just being totally black and white the West is against Russia <laughs> the cold War type of model because i I do agree with you we do need to promote and uh encourage uh, other types of economies um that are independent from the these influences uh, i do see it as um beneficial i again on from the historical point point of view this would this is what was happening uh during the cold war where the two camps were fighting for resources then and, and tension and and, and uh, loyalties of, of different nations um can i just add that uh i was just gonna type it in the in the chat yeah. that ch- regarding china china doesn't have uh, friends, China has interests, right? So right. Yep. Where, where they just uh, they do they do stuff, right? They do this, but they're like, and then we'll just use it. So yeah, China shouldn't be ignored either. Um, yep. But in terms of uh, but in terms of like this, like hesitancy of the of of Russia and um, uh, African nations to embrace Western value in exchange for concessions, um, that should be kind of taking as a sort of as a sign um and then and a really quick in terms of um short-living uh short-lived uh attention span of, of western plans this is almost this is almost like a sort a jab at our democratic process like every four years we have to elect the new president and of course the institutional <laughs> knowledge is and so it's 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 actually like almost like a a candy for a dictator so like, well, see, the democracies don't work, they never they never agree on anything they don't have the long-term vision while Putin or Bolsonaro or, or President Xi is like, oh yeah we've been, we've been sitting here pretty for so long and we know exactly what's going to happen, so yeah I guess I, guess
3: I see that there is always a price into all this multiplicity of systems and uh, Morris, you mentioned Gaddafi over there um, there are other examples, but the price in between, I think, is the question, how much are we willing to pay in order to have freedom? How much are we willing to pay in order to have an economic uh, growth? And you, you've you seen the whole history, Liz mentioned Latin America, I, I, I bring to you the structural adjustment um, home where it all started there and, and how much that played in terms of benefits. And then the whole of Southern Africa with the structural adjustment itself, it, it went not as intended, at least from the perspective of the receiving countries because the, the hope there, when, when they came from the independence, most of them embraced socialism, right? Um, and yep. they were going the way they were going, but uh, with all the changes now they find themselves in in a questioning of how much did we pay to get where we where we are which is not where we wanted to be right now uh, in terms of development right we we can of course claim the gdp and all but we know that the the, the gdp does not necessarily measure the progress of the country itself right uh, now we are heading to the last minute policy proposal because in the end we want to be able to leave a word that can be used in terms of um, policy analysis and policy design. The negotiations are ongoing. A few days ago, uh, Professor Cogan was, was discussing the coercive and nuclear negotiations, how uh, exactly these processes can be discussed, the conflict itself, uh, if the parties can be brought to the table and, and analyze that their options are costly, their options have a very high price to what they actually want. And I, I think, Liz, you, you, have, you have a take on, the, on it. Before you are analysing how co- coercive a nuclear negotiation in agreement with uh, Kogan's opinion, when he was saying uh, that we cannot allow Russia to win in this war, but we can't also allow that... Uh, we have to avoid that Russia and Putin come out of it um, humiliated for the risk of uh, elevating the price to bring it to the nuclear war. And I remember in our chat yesterday, Liz, you were saying that, hmm, it could be that they are now withdrawing mm-hmm. because they want to start bombing nuclearly, right? Yeah.
1: Know.
0: Yeah, I, I I was talking to uh, Leo just for context yesterday. I was, we were talking about how can we, you know, about this last-minute policy proposal idea. And I said, well, how can we... How can we... um, I'm so emotional right now because it's just like this is such a difficult time to propose anything when you really don't have a true understanding of the interests and intentions of the actors involved, particularly because the conflict is ongoing and the talks have been getting nowhere. Um, I think the crux of the issue lies on the unwillingness for the United States to step down from its hegemonic uh, position in the global order in order to establish a truly diverse uh, international system in which, funny thing, that's the idea of democracy is to promote diversity, not just of, you know, having women in, you know, economic position or high, you know, um, sorry, women and LGBTQ alphabet people, um, you know, with this equal rights as the white men. It, that's not the only issue, um, and so in, in the in the true value of democracy, it would also encourage uh, pl- plurality of economic systems and um, ensuring. Self determination on the part of every type of state, to, and and also the decision or giving them the choice to decide what type of values they want to have, and these are like extremely important. It's extremely important to um, qualify these as um, intrinsically related to its cultural and historical legacy. So whether that means eating with your, you know, with your, uh, with your hands. Or sitting at a table with uh, silver and a napkin on your lap, you know. So, the United States um, has has led a type of democratic development around the world, which has caused a sense of um, of um, inferiority on the part of the the states and the cultures and the peoples that the West. Uh, by way of the United States has led democratic development. And so in a way, yes, it is very neo-imperialist of of the United States to promote a type of democracy. Uh, Democracy doesn't necessarily have to be modeled after the American way, because if you do, then you have a very unipolar, unicultural, monolithic uh, idea, and in, uh, in effect, a non-democratic world system. So there is the tension and and, and it's very much justified to negate this force um, and the United States is definitely on top um, and it's very difficult to negate it because the United States has the most the strongest military power. So this is the the, the tension um, the, and and I, I think I would argue that you know the South America's joining of BRIC, um, Brazil, Russia, India, and China is a statement against this force. Okay, if, we're, if you're gonna co- uh, forever label us as the Global South, and Russia is not part of the industrial North by any means, um, culturally or economically. Um, so if you're gonna label us part of the Global South, then the Global South will be your new uh, rival. The Global South will join forces and be your new rival. Um, and the, it's it's a constant plight. It's a it's a fight toward establishing um, multipolarity. And if that requires taking down the United States, then so be it. And I'm not promoting any kind of like global catastrophe by way of <laughs> uh, taking Please down don't. America. That <laughs> I have no way to promote that, and that's not my interest, as I said in the beginning. My point is not to badger the United States aimlessly or to disintegrate it any way. My point is to state the importance of promoting a truly diverse system, um, multipolarity. That's the only way that we're going to be able to get ourselves out of this um, incessant need to engage or intervene in foreign conflicts that we actually created.
3: Anastasia, we have you go next.
1: My policy proposal. <laughs> I'm I'm very pacifistic in general, <laughs> and so I would rather I would rather just um, again hope for the best, uh, prepare for the worst. I do agree with the uh, diversifying uh, the world and not just viewing it from, as a black and white from different prisms of um, paradigm uh, views or um, again inevitability versus eternity. However, I would like to point out that democracies are very, uh, again, it is a diverse system while dictatorships tend to lean towards almost like the sameness, almost this like predictive uh, pattern of the repression, the um, creating of the... uh, mysterious enemy or the eternal enemy that's always after us um so i would argue that again ukraine uh you know from medieval times to uh 20th century pre-soviet times uh, and then um after the soviet union break uh being broken up has tried, has attempted to be democracy on a very natural sort of way. Yes, buyed by the Western uh, values, but uh, also, if you kind of look at it, I mean, this it, the approximation, the geographical proximity of Ukraine to you know near near Western Europe was kind of sort of a natural way of uh, rubbing off the certain values and and, and democratic processes. While again, Russia. Um, Russia's Westernization has been kind of forced by Peter the Great in the 18th century, where he just came, and he's like, "Okay, we're gonna wear wigs now," you know, "We're no, uh, down with beards, down with the those flowy robes from Byzantium times." He kind of forced it, though; it wasn't really a natural process, and and he did it himself, like through this um, again top-down, Tsar, you know, big man's approach that now is copied by Putin. So I'm just hoping for the best, uh, preparing for the the worst. I mean, the worst can be the, the, the worst thing. I don't want it to happen, of course. Uh, but I would like to um, hope that uh, democratic processes per the term should come from within, from the bottom versus being dictated from the top, because that's not a democracy. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I forgot to
0: say the one thing about the like the policy, the strategy, um, because that's what policy is actually, laying out a strategy for the, you know, for the solution. Um, And I think I agree with Anastasia, it needs to come from within. And the way that we have to do that is to include uh, civilian voices because they are the crux of security, of national security in any state. Um, And this is not just like including random families and especially the disinformed, you know, you know, mom and pop, People from backwoods. I'm talking about important community leaders, like doctors, and um, uh, you know, construction firms, and and stakeholders in economic and social development. Uh, let's say, immigration organizations, um, think tanks on social problems. They need to be included in in the conflict negotiation. They need to have voices at the table because the problem now, and it's been this way forever, um, government leaders and officials are, by way of their profession, very much removed from their societies because of the positions they have. That's just the nature of the job um, for their own protection. um, But also in order to manage the entire state, you have to withdraw in, in order to see the bigger picture. So you have to include the the, the civilians uh, in the discussion on how to resolve the conflict. And I think in the case of Ukraine, uh, the question, the immediate question and the problem driving this conflict is answering the question in a discussion among the, the leaders and like the political officials, the international leaders and the civilians um, to ask the question and discuss what is the impact? of nuclear weapon development on global security as well as national security. Does, the, does having nuclear weapons improve the, the health and welfare of the state itself? You know, is violence and uh, poverty and all of the world problems, are these issues reduced? And then just assessing that together and seeing just what the outcome is and seeing whether the, pol- uh, the political scientists answers are in fact
3: true. Maurice, we want to have your last minute proposal. So just,
2: just before I, I, you know, suggest proposal that I can, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the whole idea of democracy. I don't think democracy Please. is a bad thing. It's not. The only time democracy gets to be a bad thing is when you have a country where majority of the citizens are living below a dollar fifty cent a day. So poverty, ignorance, they're not educated. I've seen it firsthand. So when people are uneducated and they are poor, there's no way you can have a democracy that is competing on ideas. It's not. So people that get elected to, to the parliament or legislature are people that you know that influence those votes through some sort of you know bribery, um they mismanaged, you know, campaign money without any kind of law in place, right? So it, it becomes a bad thing for you know, most of sub-Saharan Africa. So like I said, we have to frame our democracy in a way that our people think about electing their officials based on something else and not the values of the West. Because for us, democracy needs something else. It's not, you know, like in America, you have people come and say, if I'm, you know, your senator, this is what I'm going to do. And they are held accountable to it. People are able to show those past records to say, this is what he did in the past. This is what he's doing now. It informs people's judgment. And besides, they are independent. People can work in, in their own income. That's not the case with Africa. So I feel we need to find a way to, to frame our our, democ- our democratic process that informs the way people make decisions um, in, in, in Africa. But on the large scale, I think it's also what I see happening is at the, at the global level. Power is being shifted now. You have um, Russia, China, possibly India, that if you put all of them together in Pakistan, you're talking about at least 40% of the, the world's population. That is a huge number. And so it poses a threat to the rest of the West. And as a result, we have to keep these people divided because if they come together, that is a problem in itself. So we need to figure a way out to have, it's okay to have your own blocks, you know, for economic, you know, opportunities, you know, military assistance, but it has to be in a way that it doesn't pose threat to the rest of the world. And I think that's why America plays a very important role because sometimes America say, well, you know, hold up, this cozy relationship is getting too much and it may pose a threat to the rest of us. So we need to figure a way out to have a balance so yeah um conflict is going to happen the reason we're setting conflict and you know coexistence is because we know conflict is going to continue to happen no matter what it's going to be on ideas it's going to be on power it's going to be on you know unless we stop the militarization of all countries in the world then maybe we can just you know talk in our mouth and everybody go back to the corner that's not going to happen and as long as there is militarization of power there is always going to be conflict um, yeah, I'll just, you know, leave it at that.
3: This is the end of our conversation, the world the political and uh, economic-military systems. You hear the voices of Anastasia Banikova, Elizabeth Morgan, Maurice Krumer, and Leopold in general.